passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Somebody who's new, I'm Kurt, I'm one of the pastors, and it's great to have you today. We are going to be resuming our study of 1 Samuel. Today we are in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and before we get into the study, I just want to ask you guys a little bit uh, how you feel about politics in our country right now. Now, all there's all kinds of stuff going on. I mean, there's, there's immigration issues, there's all the January 6th stuff. There's a lot of politics out there and people get really ramped up over politics. Well, I have to tell you, no matter what side of the aisle you are on, nobody likes to see when people are manipulated. Nobody likes to see underhanded schemes. Nobody likes to see when people are framed. None of us like those kind of politics, do we? Well, if you don't like politics, I'm sorry to tell you that we have a sermon, at least about half of it is going to be filled with dirty politics. Not from America right now, but politics 3,000 years ago, really dirty politics that took place during the time of Saul's reign. So I'm going to prepare you. We have some really juicy stuff coming up in just a little bit this morning. Now, when we last left off, we know that David had been secretly anointed king by Samuel. David knew he was the anointed king. His family knew he was the anointed king. Samuel knew he was the anointed king. But pretty much for everyone else, David was just that shepherd boy coming from a poor family, a a punk kid who played his guitar and worked a minimum wage job. He was of no notoriety whatsoever. That all changed last week. Remember what happened with David and Goliath? As David walked into the valley between the entire army of Israel and the army of the Philistines with just a stick in his hand, a leather strap that had a pouch in it and five smooth stones. And with just one well-placed shot between the eyes that actually penetrated into Goliath's head, the nine foot, six inch tall, metal clad, hairy monster of a man came crashing down. And David proceeded to whack off his head, finish the job. Now, what happened? Everybody saw that. David went from complete obscurity to insane popularity overnight. In two nations, not just the nation of Israel, but the nation of the Philistines. Now, David's going to learn today, as we get into the next chapter, that sometimes obscurity is a little bit easier to handle than popularity. Because popularity comes a lot, with popularity can come a lot of problems. Now, the way our study is going to break apart. In chapter 18 that we're going to look at today, the first five verses are essentially sort of an overview of the general trajectory of David's life and look at uh, three key relationships that he has there. Then when you get to verse six, it rewinds and goes back to the day after 
that David killed Goliath and starts to look at specific things that happen in David's life and the difficulties that he faced. Now, in the first five verses, which is the overview of what's going on in David's life, we're going to uh, first read those verses. Then we're going to look at them under three people's headings. First, we'll look at them under Jonathan and what those verses tell us about him. Then about Saul and then about the rest of the people and how they all view David. So beginning on the top of your outline, let's start with this. David became an important man in Israel. Look at these first five verses. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, this is after slaying Goliath, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. (coughs) Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now just to prepare you, we're gonna begin by looking at this first point where Jonathan and David became really best friends. And we're going to spend a decent amount of time on that one point because friendship is such an important thing for us to look at this morning. We see this in the first verse. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. The first relationship to develop in David's life after killing Goliath was this with Jonathan. Jonathan was the crown prince of Israel. He was the oldest son of Saul. And this is a remarkable relationship between David and Jonathan. While we often think of them as peers, they actually were very different. They were in different ages. We know that Jonathan had been serving in the military for a while by this point. But David, as we learned last week, wasn't even actually old enough to be in the military. He was under 20 years old. They came from completely different backgrounds. Jonathan grew up as the prince. He grew up in royalty and riches. David grew up in complete obscurity. He was a poor shepherd. Um, While Jonathan also grew up as the hero in the nation. Remember earlier from our study of 1 Samuel, he was the hero of the Battle of Michmash, the only man at that time in the nation who had the courage to go against the Philistines single-handedly. The previous time they had invaded the country of Israel. He was willing to risk his life, even though he was the crown prince, to save Israel and God honored that and God came to his aid and remember how all the Philistines ended up running and um, after that what happened was Jonathan had tasted a little bit of honey with the tip of his spear didn't know his father had made a silly oath saying whoever eats today shall surely die and Saul actually intended to kill his own son Jonathan who had been the hero of that day but the men of the army stood up and saved him And so we see here, not only was Jonathan an incredibly godly man and an incredibly courageous man, but he was loved by the people when the soldiers came along and saved his very life. 
So Jonathan was a man who had been the center of attention in the nation. All the eyes were on him, looking up to him, the good and godly man, the courageous leader. But David comes along now after 1 Samuel chapter 17 and suddenly David becomes the center of attention. David stole the spotlight. Now what would we expect to happen at this point? We'd expect Jonathan to start to undermine David. We would expect Jonathan to start speaking negatively about David because he's stealing the glory. But here's what is so beautiful. We don't see any of that out of Jonathan, do we? It simply says, Jonathan loved him. Jonathan's soul was knit to David's soul. In other words, they became best of friends when what you would expect would they would have become bitter enemies. Now you wonder, what gave these two rivals such unity? And here's what it is. Remember, it's not their age. They're of different ages. It's not their backgrounds. They're of different backgrounds. It's the fact that both of them deeply loved God. They were spiritual brothers. Jonathan did not see, Jonathan was not in the army to promote himself. Jonathan was not in the army to make a name for himself, to try and see how many followers he could get on Facebook. Jonathan was in the army because it was his way of serving God and serving his country with all of his heart. And he was willing to risk his life to do that. David, the same way. He loves God and he's willing to risk his life serving him. The beauty of this friendship is that Jonathan is not worried about protecting his position. He's not worried when somebody comes along and starts to become more famous than him. Instead, he's the opposite. He's grateful. Grateful to have found a friend that is like him who deeply, deeply loves God. A true brother in the Lord. Rather than denying or denigrating David's gifts or abilities, he's thankful for, for David's gifts and abilities. Now, I need to pause here and look at a phrase that often is brought up in this text. <coughs> it's brought up by many liberal commentators and they like to make a big deal out of this and I, they completely misunderstand this. They look at this phrase, it says, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And I've read this in the liberal commentaries. I say, oh, this is evidence that Jonathan and David had a homosexual relationship. And I have to tell you, that is a complete and total gross misrepresentation of the scriptures. And it doesn't take a Bible degree to figure that out. Simply look at this. In this context of this chapter, remember the, the title of my message is David. You either love him or you hate him. You hate him. In this chapter, we find that Jonathan loves David, Michael loves David, all the people love David. Everybody seems to love David. The word love here has no idea, no sexual connotations in it. 
the word love here in the Hebrew means admiration, it means admire, it means look up to somebody, it means loyalty, esteem somebody. It does not mean a sexual relationship. Secondly, the word love here, or excuse me, if you're talking about a sexual relationship in Hebrew, they use a different word. They don't use the word love, they use the word know. And I put this as an example in here for you. Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam knew his wife, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So it's the word know in Hebrew that details a sexual relationship. The word love means to esteem, to value, to have loyalty. It does not have any sexual connotations. So when you have this idea that um, Jonathan loves David, doesn't mean he's in a homosexual relationship with him. Third, we know that these guys have grown up under Mosaic law. Jonathan and David, we're seeing, are some of the most godly men in the nation. And the Mosaic law speaks very clearly about homosexuality. It says this in Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, and they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So the idea here that when you see Jonathan love David as his own soul, that this is a homosexual relationship, is a gross misrepresentation of Scripture. And quite honestly, the people who say that, those liberal scholars, they'll be judged very harshly by Jesus on the day they stand in front of him because it's a complete misrepresentation of God's word. Now, the other thing I'd like to point out here is this is an opportunity for us to have some important application to our life right out of this first verse. And it's simply this. We've seen how Jonathan reacts to David when God starts to raise David up and yet bring Jonathan down. How do we react when God begins to raise someone up around us and our recognition and our status begins to diminish in the eyes of others. Not that we've done anything wrong or done anything different. God is just raising someone up, and in the process, we are going down. Are we envious of what God is doing in their lives? Do we start to use our words to tear that other person down? Or can we be like Jonathan and celebrate what God is doing, even if it costs us a little bit of fame and importance? Another thought is how do churches respond when this happens, not just on an individual level, but it happens on a church level? How do churches respond when God starts to raise up another church in the community? And God begins to give that church success and he begins to slightly diminish an other church from its success. Not that one church is doing wrong and one church is doing right. Just God in his sovereignty has chosen to lift one church up and in so doing has chosen to diminish another one. Just like the same thing with Jonathan. Jonathan has done nothing wrong. He is a good and godly man, but in God's sovereignty and in God's wishes, he has chosen to raise David up and the spotlight is shifting away from Jonathan when he 
does that? We as a church, how do we respond if God is choosing to raise up another Bible-believing church in our community? Are we envious? Are we sniping? Is our heart becoming filled with darkness? Folks, it's very hard to swallow when God chooses to make us less if he's chosen to make others more. But we have to realize everything we have comes as a gift from God by his grace. We don't deserve any of it. We celebrate whatever God is doing with us. If he does a lot with us, great. If he does less with us, that's great. We don't deserve any of it. As I was studying, I ran across an example. I've run across this example a number of times in my studies, but I've never shared it, but I thought maybe it might be worth sharing this morning. It's from two pastors who were both very famous pastors in the 1900s in England. And one guy was named F.B. Meyer, and the other was G. Campbell Morgan. And they both have a lot of writings out there from the 1900s, uh, both very good pastors, but they pastored in the same town. And over time, there began to be a shift where G. Campbell Morgan's church started growing and F.B. Meyer's church started diminishing. And then because friends had moved over to G. Campbell's Morgan's church, some people left Meyer's church and went over to Morgan's church and Meyer just writes in his writings in the 1900s about how hard it was for him how difficult it was for him, and that he realized he was becoming envious. He was becoming jealous, and he wasn't celebrating the success of that church. He was envious of it. And then he ran across this passage. And God convicted him that he needed to be like Jonathan for a David, celebrating what God was doing in another person's life, not envious of it. So he began praying for Mr. Morgan and Pastor Morgan. And that's what God had called him to do. Now I'd say that's a challenge for us here at Crosswinds. Do you ever find yourself envious of the success of another in Christ, whether that's individually or corporately? God calls us to be a Jonathan when there's a David. He calls us to be an encourager and not, not envious but someone who's encouraging others in their success that God has given them. The next thing we see is there in verse three. <clears throat> then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And we're not told exactly what is in this covenant, but we know what a covenant is. It's a commitment to loyalty. It's a commitment to friendship in spite of adversity. And I think there's a brief bit of wisdom on what true friendship looks like just in this verse. And it's this. Friendship is not a matter of convenience. Friendship is a matter of commitment. Let me say that again. Friendship is not a matter of our convenience. It's a matter of commitment. Friendships are a choice. They take hard work. They take sacrifice. They take keeping our promises. Today, in our culture, we don't speak much about friendship and what it involves. In fact, the young people have learned that friends are what you have on Facebook. 
You know, because somebody says, yeah, I'm going to be your friend. That is not a friend on Facebook. That is an acquaintance on friendship. Because true friendship always involves a commitment. It always involves being willing to make sacrifices. True friendship involves hard work and a choice to do it. Just like Jonathan made a commitment to David. It's going to be a hard work and sacrifice. The scripture says this, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In other words, not what matters is not how many friends you have on Facebook, many companions. What matters is that you have a friend who is committed to you, who sticks closer than a brother. And that is what David found in Jonathan, a committed friend who would not leave his side. In fact, one of the reasons so many people are lonely today, I would say, is because people do not know what good friendship looks like. They do not know how to be a good friend, and they don't know what to look like or look for in a good friend. Friendship, my friends, is not about what you get from a relationship. Friendship is what you choose to put into a relationship. It's the love you choose to put into it, the loyalty, the sacrifice. It's this commitment that Jonathan made to David. That's what true friendship looks like. So best friends are based on, best friendships often are based on what people have in common. Now, sometimes we say, I'm good friends with someone because we have a computer interest in common or we have a car interest in common or a fishing interest in common. Nothing wrong with having some of those things in common, but best friends are not found around fishing. Best friends are found around Jesus. That is where you find your absolute deepest best friends. That's what David and Jonathan found in each other. Two men who are deeply committed to God, who deeply love God, both men who have risked their very life trusting that God would keep his promises in defending the nation against the Philistines. Then we see this. <clears throat> and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And here we see another quality of true friendship. Jonathan, as David's friend, didn't hold on to his position, didn't hold on to his status, didn't even hold on to his stuff, but he shared his own self in a sacrificial way for his friend David. The idea of sharing his robe, when David started rocking around in Jonathan's robe, it's like giving him the company credit card. Everybody knows that robe. If you're wearing Jonathan's robe, you're walking around now with the recognition and authority of Saul's own son. Jonathan chose to give that away. Giving David his own sword, his own bow, his own armor. Remember David, he was so poor, all he had was a stick, a leather strap, and some rocks to fight Goliath. Jonathan didn't just buy him armor, I'm giving you my own armor sacrifice. And isn't that what true friends do? Don't true friends show that friendship by sacrificing themselves for their friend? I think about who are the truest friends in my life. And the true friends 
were not just those who I had when life was convenient, but they were the people that helped me out when I really needed it. They broke into their schedule, they broke into their life, and they came to my aid. I think of a time when Cindy and I were first married and we had a well and the the well stopped working and we had a a new well put in and I had to dig the the six foot deep channel from the well to the house. I didn't know digging hard dirt could be that difficult. And it was hard and I was not making progress and it had to be done by Monday morning and along comes my friend on Sunday afternoon driving a backhoe down the road. I was never so happy to see a piece of power equipment. But isn't that what true friends do? They sacrifice themselves and come to someone's aid. And that's exactly what Jonathan did for David here. So we see right here at the beginning of what is going to be, as you'll see in a few minutes, a very hard time in David's life. God gave David the gift of a deep and true friend a friend who could celebrate his successes, not be jealous of them, a friend who is committed to him, not a matter of convenience, but a matter of commitment, because that's what true friendship involves, and a friend that would sacrifice himself to help David in his time of need. So we see there's incredible friendship that starts right there, and David's going to need that friendship as we get into the next section. Two other people we should look at in this opening section. The the second one is Saul. This opening section tells us that Saul promoted David. Verse 2. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. That was not unusual for Saul, as we've seen. If somebody was successful militarily... Saul instantly brought him in the army. We saw that in verse chapter 14. When Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he attached himself to them. In verse 5, we saw this. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. David ultimately becomes a very consistent man, a very successful man in the military. The other person we see in these opening sections after Jonathan and Saul is the people. David was loved by the people. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of the sight of Saul's servants. In other words, as David moved up in the ranks of the military, people were not jealous of him. Actually, people were thankful for him. They really loved David. So it looks like at this point, everything is going well. Jonathan loves David and the people love David and Saul is giving promotions. Everybody loves David, but one person, that's Saul. I told you verse six rewinds right to the time as soon as David is finished with the battle with Goliath. Let's find it what happens at that point where we see Saul was jealous of David. And incidentally, this begins a period of trouble in David's life that will continue all the way to the end of this book. 
As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. <coughs> so what we have here is when Saul and the army and David are coming into town, coming back into Israel, they're having a ticker tape parade. It's sort of like what happens when a team wins a Super Bowl. You know how a city celebrates. And when people do those things, they oftentimes uh, make up chants and victory chants. And the women are doing that. The victory chant says that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And folks, quite honestly, there's a lot of exaggeration in here. How many people did Saul slay? Zero. He was a big chicken, remember? For 40 days, he tried to bribe somebody else to fight Goliath. He hid. He did nothing. He should be thankful that he even got mentioned in the song. Now, David, did he slay 10,000? <laughs> nope. He slayed just one big, ugly, hairy, metal-clad man with one rock. That's all he had done. But yet in this song, there's a little comparison. And in the comparison, David is given a little more prominence than Saul. And Saul, who is very insecure and who has a big ego problem, cannot handle that. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they've ascribed thousands. Well, what more can he have but the kingdom? Here what we find is Saul is a very envious person. As soon as somebody gets a little more of the spotlight than he does, he begins to melt down. Jonathan, we saw earlier, is the opposite of this. But Saul, as his father, filled with envy. And we're going to see what envy does. First thing we'll see, it corrupts his capacity for joy. Saul will end up as an irritable, peevish, resentful, ugly person. Unlike Jonathan, who is a beautiful and lovely man that everyone wants to be with. Also, we're going to see that this envy sets Saul against people that should be his friends. David is Saul's most loyal soldier. And yet Saul will end up hating David and doing all kinds of political schemes to eliminate David because David's done nothing wrong. It's just that Saul is envious and jealous of him. Saul's last comment like, what more could he have but the kingdom? What we know is going on here is that we've seen earlier that Saul has been rejected as king. Twice, in chapter 14 and once, and in chapter 15 and other times, Saul has been told, you are being rejected as king. And I like the way it says it in chapter 15. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. In this song, what is Saul starting to realize? 
here is somebody who is better than me. A 19-year-old kid with a rock and a leather strap. Maybe this is the guy right under my nose that God is going to take the kingdom out of my hands and put it in his hands. So the response from Saul at this point is, Saul eyed David from that day on. Something's going on with this kid. Now, it says the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand. This is the next day after slaying Goliath. David goes right back to the humble position of being the court musician. No accolades, no big cheering, nothing. I'm a court musician playing the guitar for Saul, trying to put him in a good mood. But because of all this envy and jealousy in his heart, a harmful spirit from God rushes on Saul, and he ends up raving through his house. That's yelling, screaming, throwing fits of rage. Why? Because he's jealous of the humble one who's playing the guitar in front of him, trying to calm him down. And then what do we find happens next? Saul tried to kill David. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin him to the wall. But David evaded him twice. The day after killing Goliath, Saul tries to assassinate David twice. All out of envy. All out of jealousy. This is the danger of envy and jealousy. We, it never stays small. It always gets big. I told you. It does two things. It takes away all of our joy and makes us bitter, peevish, irritable, ugly people like Saul. The other things it does is it takes people who should be our friends and makes them our enemies. That's exactly what Saul is doing to David. And quite honestly, I'll tell you a third thing. It leads us to do things we never thought we'd do before and of which we really regret. Twice, Troll tries to assassinate David, and David has done nothing wrong. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Why would he be afraid at this point? Saul is beginning to realize they're in the same room. Saul is an experienced warrior. No place for David to go. Saul twice tries to get him with the spear, and David evades him twice. So I was like, that doesn't happen. Nobody evades my spear. God is on his side, not on my side, and Saul is starting to realize it. So what we find next is more politics. Saul put David in the military, hoping that he would die in the line of duty. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings. Here it is, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Judah, or all Israel and Judah loved him, for he went out and came in before them. 
Saul cannot stand to listen to David play music in front of him, so we'll get you out of my presence. We're going to sign you up for the military. This whole thing with Goliath, <laughs> one lucky shot. <laughs> we'll see how you handle being in the military. Now, the hope is that David will die in battle. And that would take care of the David problem for Saul. But it sort of backfires. Instead of dying in battle, David actually becomes quite successful. David's popularity actually increases. So at this point, Saul hatches another political plan to try and bump David off. Saul gave David risky military missions, hoping he would die in the line of duty. Then Saul said to David, well, here's my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Now, if you were here last week in 1 Samuel 17, remember what Saul had promised anyone who could slay Goliath. There were actually three things, great riches, his daughter as a wife, and a tax-free status for the family. Obviously, Saul did not keep that one. Otherwise, David would already be married. So he's what you call a promise breaker, not a promise keeper. He says, you can have my daughter Merib in marriage, only be valiant for me. And the thing is, understand what's talking about here is heroic military actions. The kind of military actions where you go back behind enemy lines and not everybody comes back alive. This is all an attempt to bump David off. Saul is proposing a marriage, but he's actually planning a funeral. And in case you missed that, just look at the next verse. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. That's how we'll bump David off and get rid of him. David responds, and David said to Saul, well, who am I and who are my relatives and my father's clan in Israel that I should be a son-in-law to the king? Like, Saul, I'm just a poor guy from Bethlehem. Why are you trying to offer your daughter to me? I think he's also saying, you just recently tried to kill me twice. So why do you want me to marry your daughter right now? I think he's sort of suspecting something is going on here. Well, David undertakes these risky military missions and to Saul's surprise, he doesn't come back in a body bag. He comes back very much alive. Now Saul has a problem. He used Merib as bait for a trap and the trap backfired. So look what he does. But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, uh, the Melathite, for a wife. Now imagine this, you come back from serving in the military, high risk missions, you know you survive and come back, there's a bride, the king's daughter waiting for you, you get there, you show up to your wedding and there's another man's name on the cake. You're held back and you watch another man go forward and say the vows with your bride. You watch that man then take your woman into the wedding chamber. Well, Saul couldn't kill him physically with a sword twice, so he's going to kill him emotionally by putting a sword through his heart. I told you there's dirty politics in this chapter. Crazy dirty politics in this chapter. 
Well, Saul gave David ultra-high risk missions, hoping he would die in the line of duty. The next thing we see is now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. Michael's a younger daughter. She realizes that now David's the most available bachelor in town because obviously the older daughter wasn't given to him. So she says, that's the kind of guy I want. That's the kind of guy I love. And here we read this. And they told Saul, and this thing pleased him. Now, he's he excited about this because he really wants David in the family? What's he going to do? Use her as bait. Bait for another trap to try and assassinate him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. I'm going to try and use her to get the Philistines to kill him again. Now, therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. What do you think David's thinking at this point? Yeah, right. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. In other words, I'm gonna tell my servants to flatter David because he's not gonna trust me at this point, obviously. And Saul's servants spoke these, those words in David's ear. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and I have no reputation? Wait a minute. In 1 Samuel 17, if anybody killed Goliath, what was Saul going to do? Wasn't he going to enrich that man? Did Saul do that for David? That's why David is a poor man. And then we see this. And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. And Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of his enemies. Now, by the way, uh, the Philistines are not going to give up their their foreskins willingly. Sort of humor on that one. In other words, you have to kill a hundred Philistines and bring this evidence from their body that you actually killed them. What he's trying to do is turn David into a mass murderer. You know, Jeffrey Dahmer killed 17. David, I need you to kill a hundred. And in case it's unclear, verse 25 says it very clearly. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. This is all a sit up political manipulation to make him die. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David to be the king's son-in-law. Oh, David says, you think you're going to have a set of trap for me? Well, I can play this game. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. In other words, there's a short time period. You have to murder 100 people and bring back their foreskins. David took his men and did 200 people. Now, the thing is, David just framed Saul. There is no way Saul can get out of giving his daughter at this point. In fact, David's reputation just went what? Higher and even better. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for his wife. In the beginning of this chapter, Jonathan loved David. End of this chapter, 
Saul's daughter loves David and is married to David. Everybody loves David except for Saul who is, hates him because of jealousy. And when Saul saw that I knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David. So David was, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle and as often as they came out, David had, much, had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. Now what is the takeaways from this? In the Old Testament, the Chapters tend to make their points by way of contrast. They like to contrast characters, like Jonathan contrasted to Saul. We talked about this earlier. How do we handle it when God raises someone up and gives them success around us, and in so doing, diminishes us? Not that we've done anything wrong, but just God in his sovereignty makes us less as they make that person more. Jonathan could celebrate David's success. Saul hated David's success. And it made him into a murderer, a peevish, ugly, irritable, nasty person. So the first thing I ask is, how do you handle the success of others around you? The second contrast is this. The contrast between David and Saul. David is given great success because the Lord is with him and he's in a right relationship with God. It doesn't mean his life is easy. He's gonna be chased by Saul for chapters at this point, but God is with him. Saul, on the other hand, gives us a picture of someone where the Lord is not with them. And the Lord is working against them. And his life is irritable, his life is ugly, and it's just terrible. Which one are you? Are you more like David? The Lord is with you and you're seeking him and trying to follow him or are you more like Saul, intentionally rebelling against the Lord and going your own way? Now, you need to understand that at any moment, Saul could have done the one thing that would have changed the direction of his life. At any moment, Saul could have repented of his sin, admitted of his sin and gone back into a relationship with God. Even though he had attempted murder multiple times with David, that opportunity was still there. You doubt me? In 1 Chronicles 33, it tells us the story of King Manasseh. Manasseh was an incredibly bad king. He is described as having done more wickedness than the people that God kicked out of the promised land. He burned his sons and daughters in sacrifice to other gods. He was involved in sorcery, astro astrology, involved in witchcraft, incredibly dark and wicked man. In fact, God sent the Babylonians to take Manasseh into captivity in Babylon. But then it says in the second half of that chapter that in captivity and in the prison, Manasseh confessed his sin. He turned and sought the Lord for his sin. And God had grace on his life. God took Manasseh out of captivity, actually returned him to Jerusalem for a king, and he was a king that led a revival in his nation. No matter how far you have gone, no matter what you have done, you could be an actual murderer like Manasseh, 
You could be someone who's attempted murder like Saul. The opportunity of repentance and new life always stands there with God's arms open wide. If you would confess your sin and seek God, when you return to him, he will return to you, no matter what you've done. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chapter. Boy, all kinds of crazy politics going on. But what a reminder that in the midst of all these crazy politics, that you were large and in charge of David's life carrying him through. We thank you, Lord, for the lessons we learned by contrasts between Jonathan and, and Saul about how to handle uh, times when you're raising others up and maybe bringing us down. The lessons of contrast between Saul and David, uh, what it looks like where the Lord is with someone because they're following the Lord and when the Lord is against someone because they've left the Lord. May we be people who seek you and love you with all of our heart. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.